simply defined, apologetics as a working definition is merely knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. Knowing what we believe, why we believe it, and being able to communicate that to others effectively. I would also add winsomely, with tact, with humility yet a boldness that comes from the Holy Spirit, who is the spirit not of timidity, but of power, love, and self-control. And so some of us walking into the topic of apologetics maybe are unclear of what, what, what is apologetics. Well, the Christian worldview is a biblical worldview. And the command to defend the Bible comes from the Bible itself. Therefore, the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. So the Bible commands us to do apologetics, and it tells us how to do it. 1 Peter 3.15 is probably one of the best verses on the topic of where does the Bible actually tell me that I need to do this? Because some of us walk into a room like this, I'm sure, with preconceived ideas that apologetics is for those like evangelists, those people that are super outspoken and awkward maybe sometimes, and the people that maybe you feel like, I can't relate to that. And I'm, I'm here today to tell you that the Bible tells us, God's Word tells us, that apologetics, defending the faith, as we'll get into here in a second, is for every Christian. And so the tendency is to pass off the responsibility to those who might seem outgoing, maybe some like charismatic, winsome, naturally, they're just uh, people, persons, um, but really the Bible lays out this responsibility for all of us and tells us how to do this. First Peter 3.15, it says this, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So this is going to involve some feedback here. What is the priority according to this verse? What's the first priority that you see? What do you see? Christ. Okay. That's good. That's actually it. I was hoping that you'd come to something else and I'd come in with like this powerful, no, that's not it. Um, that's not the case because you guys, you guys are nailing it. It's Christ. A lot of times in this verse, people will look at this and say, look, we're to give a defense. The second part of this verse says to make a defense. That is where we get the word apologia or apologist. Um, it's this idea of making a defense. The Greek word is apologia. And so that word means to make a legal defense as to the trustworthiness of the claim that you're making. So you're making a case for the truthfulness of whatever you're talking about. We are called to make a defense. But before doing that, as you appropriately answered, the first priority for the Christian is to set apart Christ as Lord. And so sanctify Christ as Lord. What does that mean? Everything we do, everything we reason about with somebody who doesn't believe, is dictated by Christ's lordship. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is the king of heaven and earth now. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, therefore go and what? Make disciples. And so this priority is under the banner of Jesus as Lord. 
the effective uh, apologist, the effective evangelist, the effective Christian who is witnessing to somebody who's not a Christian or who's curious about Christianity is one who is in their hearts set apart Christ as Lord. They know who Jesus is, they know who the King is, and they know who they are. And so we're coming in it with what uh, is the maybe $10 uh, word of the day. We're coming into it with a presupposition. Can you guys say presupposition? presupposition. We're coming in with already established understanding of what truth is. Now, when we do that, some of the uh, uh, more eager tenant, uh, high school guys especially uh, that are naturally a little more self-confident, ladies, you know what I'm talking about, uh, some of these Christian guys, I was not yet one of them. I, I became a Christian when I was 19 years old. But I had this natural kind of arrogance, confidence. And the topic of apologetics tends to appeal sometimes to those guys that are like, dude, I can, I can destroy people with my ability to argue and reason. Um, that is checked by this verse right here where it says, with gentleness and reverence. That's to be our demeanor. So to be able to engage with somebody with an attitude of gentleness where we're not coming in to just win an argument, we're actually coming in to win a soul. That's different. We're coming in with reverence, meaning um, respect. We're looking at this person, a fellow image bearer of God, with dignity and respect because they bear the image of this God who created them as much as I bear the image of this God who created me. And so I can relate on that level to this fellow image bearer, even if they deny the Christian worldview. And so the question then becomes, well, what do you do when you come across statements that people make? Any of you ever come across any of these statements? I don't, I don't believe the Bible. Uh, wasn't the Bible just made up to control the masses? Uh, God is just a fairy tale. Anyone? Yeah. I don't believe in God because I believe in science. Okay, that's super popular, especially in our day. Science is a synonym, an, a, another word for knowledge. So we live in a day where we elevate knowledge as though we can attain knowledge apart from God. Now, the problem with that is that um, all these statements, they seem to be um, powerful um, rebukes even before the conversation started. They seem to kind of shut down the conversation. What do I say if they don't say they believe the Bible? A lot of Christians, ready to talk about what the Bible says, at the moment that the unbeliever says, I don't believe that book, the temptation is to then say, okay, well, well, I guess since you don't believe it, I won't use it. Well, the problem with that is illustrated by, um, imagine two knights, okay, back in the day, two knights are coming to battle. The first knight confronts the second knight by taking out the sword that he owns out of a sheath. And the second knight looks at the first knight and says, I don't believe in thine sword. Now that knight has one of two options. He can either put the sword back into its sheath and start reasoning why a sword is effective in battle, why swords are dangerous, why the blade is sharp, and why you should actually believe and start giving reasons why the sword exists and why it's effective 
The other option, which I believe the Bible lays out for Christians, is what? Just use the sword. Just cut your opponent down, right? Now, we're not advocating violence. Um, Got to be clear on that. But what we are advocating is that in a world of differing viewpoints against the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, many people effectively disengage the Christian apologist, the Christian witness, by just saying, I don't believe that, so you can't use it. When I look at somebody who says that, I say, well, I don't believe in your presuppositions, so why would I give up mine? I'm going to use my presuppositions to show you that your presuppositions don't hold ground. And then you start engaging with the unbeliever in love, with reverence, with respect, but with a level of seriousness because we're talking about the things of God. See, a lot of times um, an effective approach, just very practically speaking, and it's hard to, it's hard to uh, accomplish a lot in, in, in about 20 minutes because I do want to open it up for questions, objections, whatever, uh, towards the last 10 minutes of our time together. But a good tool to use when somebody comes at you with rhetoric, you know, you know what rhetoric is, just a statement that they've heard so they kind of regurgitate it. It's easy to say. A lot of these statements are rhetoric. Um, when somebody comes at you and says, well, wasn't the Bible just made up to control the masses? Or, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. A great tactical approach to that, to put them on the defense, because they're making a statement, basically trying to dismiss your, your position as a Christian. A great tactic is just asking one simple question. And it has various forms, but asking this question. How did you come to that conclusion? What, what led you to believe that? I'm, I'm just curious. And if you can honestly ask that, you're literally switching the conversation around now and you're giving the um, opponent to a Christian worldview the responsibility to defend their position. Now what you're going to see probably nine times out of ten is that the non-Christian, the antagonist, is going to look at you and say, I... Uh, I don't, I mean, and then they'll try to change the subject. The goal is to keep them on the hook for their statement that they made. It's easy to make statements. It's hard to defend them if you don't really understand them, right? Now, we're not doing that as Christians to humiliate people. Um, apologists, uh, apologists will refer to um, this, this tactic as an internal critique, we're going to take the worldview of the non-believer and critique their worldview using their own belief system and structure, showing that it doesn't hold ground. Another good question to ask, you know, when you see them struggle to articulate why they made the statement, to bring in this question. And I do this oftentimes when I see somebody kind of giving me pushback on Christianity, on the rules of the Bible, whatever it is. Um, I'll look at them and I'll ask this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? If there's any sense of hesitation to answer that, that is typically the response that's below the surface. Any hesitation is an indicator that they're not looking for truth. They're looking for something to just dismiss what they already know to be true. Okay? So... That brings us to our next verse, our section in Romans 1. As a Christian, 
we get to have incredible confidence because God has chosen to reveal truth to us. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 21, this section of God's word gives us universal insight into the condition of mankind, us included. When we come across unbelievers, uh, we don't need to sit there for hours to try to convince them that God exists. He has already made it evident to them, and look at these underlined phrases to see what I mean. This section says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. How do we suppress the truth if we don't, if the unbeliever says, I, I, don't, I don't know what's true. I, I don't believe that there is a God. Well, according to God, they do know God exists, but the issue is not of revelation about God or evidence about God. It's an issue of suppressing the truth about God in unrighteousness. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Here's our second phrase of confidence for the believer. When you're encountering somebody that says, I don't believe the Bible, I don't believe that God exists, you look at them and say with confidence, I think you do. And in all due respect, um, let me tell you why. Paul goes on, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Two things in creation referenced here that evidence God's existence, his eternal power and divine nature. Those aspects of who God is are clearly seen so that we are without excuse. That means the unbeliever who's pushing back would say sometimes, I just need more evidence, to which the Christian is tempted to go down that rabbit hole with them and maybe waste a lot of valuable time when we can instead look at God's word with confidence and say, no, you know that creation demands that there's a creator. You know that the complexity of life cannot be explained by time and chance acting on matter. That's a reduction to absurdity. And now, I can use these phrases because, you know, I'm used to studying these topics, but my goal in this time is really to give you a taste to see your confidence in being a faithful witness for Christ has just got to rest on a biblical ground. If you have one of these, you have all that you need pertaining to life and godliness. You have everything that you need to answer the unbeliever and to stand firm on the ground that is not sinking sand. Our culture right now is trying to build their houses on sinking sand. And although they look like houses, we can all see as believers, man, those houses are sinking. Let me instead introduce you to the rock who says, build upon me and your house will survive the storms of life. Then we get to engage with them. We get to share with them these things. Now, like I said, someone may say, well, I don't believe God exists or the Bible is a myth. It's here where we typically experience worldview conflict. And this is typically the place where a lot of people kind of back out. They don't necessarily want to dive in too deep because we live in a culture, even as a Christian culture, where we respect and highly exalt the 11th commandment. Anyone know what the 11th commandment is? Thou shalt be nice. 
and we adhere to that commandment and completely disregard all the others. And we are so consumed with this desire to come across nice that we quickly try to find a way out when it gets tense, but the the God who created us and the people that he loves, that he wants to reach with the good news of Christ, calls us to have those difficult but necessary conversations. Love drives us to have these conversations. And we're kind of caught in a corner here. When the unbeliever claims not to believe God exists, the question is, do we believe what the unbeliever says about him or herself? Or do we believe what God says about the unbeliever? I had a conversation with a guy at a business locally in Fresno on Monday this week, and he is a self-proclaimed atheist. And at one point, he just espoused his atheism and said, basically, yeah, there is no God. I said, man, I, I don't have enough faith to believe in atheism. It takes a lot of faith to believe that time and chance acting on matter created this ability over that time and chance acting on matter where I'm able to look you in the eyes and have a logical, reasonable, rational conversation where you understand me and I understand you. I don't have enough faith to believe that faith system. He was kind of caught off uh, guard a little bit. You challenge an atheist with living by faith, they kind of don't know what to do with it. It's kind of fun. But it's not fun for the purpose of just kind of disorienting them. It's fun because you get to see that they're struggling with a lot of assumptions and presuppositions that they're trying to build their house on, which is ultimately sinking sand. Does that, does that make sense? So as, as I'm talking to him, I, I tell him, look, <clears throat> the Bible tells us, and this is after he even said, I don't, I don't believe the Bible. So okay, well, the Bible tells us, because I'm not going to put my sword away from this fight, this intellectual fight that we're having. So the Bible tells us that we all know God exists, that God has made it evident to each of us. So I know you know he exists, but it's an issue of suppressing that truth because we love our sin. Our issue is that we don't want to submit our lives to God because we want to be God. When I said that to him, he goes, oh. And it felt like I made some progress in a, in a conversation that again, in our culture, wants to avoid because it's a violation of the 11th commandment. And so, we're going to kind of fly through some of these other verses to kind of build on the confidence that you get to have in conversation with whoever it is. That God is at work, and he's using the means of image bearers who have been redeemed by God through faith in Jesus to have conversations with people who don't yet believe or who resist trusting Christ. John 16, verse 8 says, and he, when he comes, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit here, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I have trust in the truth of God's word about the work of the Holy Spirit convicting people as I share the gospel with them. I can't see it happening, but I can see the effects of the Spirit moving in a person's life at times. Last week was one of them. I'm talking to a guy at this um, shelter that I'm working at, and he's there with his family, and I'm just laying out the truth of Jesus and ta taking all the counter-intuitive um, thoughts, the illogical thoughts that he's been building his life on that has done nothing but damaged his life. I'm taking those in subjection to what the Bible says and pointing him to Christ, 
And at one point, this guy looks at me and says, like, he literally gives out this, like, ugh. And I didn't know what it was. I thought he's either going to fight me or he's excited about something. And I see him, like, he goes, like, ugh. And I'm like, dude, what's he doing? And he looks up, and he's got this smile on his face, thankfully. He's like, I've never really heard this stuff before. I've heard bits and pieces, but this is all making sense. John 16, 8 tells me that the Holy Spirit is doing work in ways that I can't see most often in the hearts of other people. And as I depend confidently on the truth of what God has revealed and just speak it, man, there's power in the Word of God. It's been said, uh, don't try to defend God's Word as though it needed any help because God's Word is like a lion in a cage. You don't defend the lion. You just let the lion out of the cage. It'll defend itself. You just start talking about what the Bible says and give what God says about truth and revelation, and people are pretty hit by it pretty hard, pretty quick. Um, we got six more minutes. I feel the pressure from people waiting out there. But are you guys tracking with me? I want to open it up for questions and maybe some feedback as well. So Psalm 36, verse 9, another passage that talks about this confidence that we have. For with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Only in God's light do we see light. Because God gives us the light or understanding, wisdom, knowledge from himself, we are able to see, to understand, to comprehend truth, the natural order, what can't be seen that's supernatural, that he currently is Lord of. Uh, Proverbs 1 verse 7, here's the issue when it comes down to it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. When we interact with people that do not believe the things of Scripture, they are either wise or a fool. Those are the two categories that God has laid out for every single person on the earth. No matter what culture you're from, ethnicity you have, we're either wise because we fear God. We recognize He's eternal and powerful through what He's made. We're without excuse we either turn to him in reverent fear, God, I am your servant, I am your child, I want to honor you, I want to live for you and love you, or we look at all that revelation and we say, no, I want to do my own thing because I want to be God. I don't want to submit to the God that I know exists. Colossians 2.3 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Unless we come to know Christ, we cannot attain any wisdom or knowledge in the ultimate sense because it's all in Christ. It's all from him, through him. And because of that, we glorify him. And so, um, many of us come across points of time where our faith struggle uh, is real. We have doubts. And I don't want to be insensitive. Maybe you're in here where you're like, dude, I don't even know if I believe in this stuff. I'm here because my parents paid for me to come to camp or my friends invited me. And this is all new to me. And I just am so grateful that you're in this chapel right now because God is after you. He loves you. The proof is that he sent his son to rescue you. But I recognize that even for those of us growing up in church, there can be doubts that linger, that might be unanswered. And when that happens, we see uh, articles like this in Christianity Today um, referencing high school students that deal with doubt. It says over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having serious doubts about faith. Less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or friend. Correlated with greater faith maturity 
sorry, yet those students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. In other words, it's not doubt that, that's toxic to faith, it's silence. If you're in here struggling with some deep questions, man, if God is good, then why does hell exist? If God is so loving, why, why do kids get cancer? These things that are deep issues to really wrestle with and understand from a biblical worldview that God actually addresses these things. We don't have time to necessarily get into them today, but I will leave you with this. If you are there struggling with these things, man, Romans 10, 17, maybe you're struggling in faith. God's word says, so faith comes through hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Being in the book is the antidote to doubting our faith because faith comes through hearing, hearing by the word of Christ, amen? Hey, we got one minute left. I am so sorry. This is the first time we're doing it. I was planning on giving uh, more time. But if you do have questions, um, it's going to be an opportunity for you to dive in deeper with your leaders. They love you, and so do I. So uh, thanks for coming today, and you guys have a great time.